Well, it's amazing, and we say this every summer around this time of year, that Labor Day is quickly approaching. We have just two weeks in our uh, summer series in the book of Proverbs, and if you're uh, just joining us recently, uh, we've been learning the way of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and really uh, took one week to just say, what is wisdom? How can we define it? How do we get it? Where does it come from? Um, And then from there, all these different topics that the book of Proverbs tends to revolve around, and uh, kind of these very relevant, very practical topics. If um, you or somebody you know find yourself reading the Bible and kind of thinking, I just don't know how to relate this to real life. It doesn't really connect with me at all. It's just this kind of old book. How does this even uh, relate to my life? Um, My one challenge would be, are you really reading the Bible? But secondly, read the book of Proverbs. If we make a consistent approach, like a, like a daily supplement to read a proverb a day, you would, uh, or a chapter a day, you would see how stunningly relevant this speaks into your life each and every week. And we've seen these topics like work and planning and words. Last week, we looked at sex and sexuality, and this morning, we look at wealth. What's the wisdom in our wealth? And then next week, we'll wrap up the series with the wisdom of friendship, probably the most neglected um, aspect and relationship that we face in the suburbs is friendship, and that'll be next week. But um, as we approach this topic of wealth, I want to kind of upfront just um, acknowledge the big irony that always revolves around it, and that the talking points between wealth and faith are, are pretty well known. I don't think there's going to be any big revelations for you today as we t- cover this topic of the book of Proverbs. It probably won't be new. Maybe it will if you're brand new to the Bible and to faith. Praise God that you're here. But my guess is this, is this won't be new. And to my prayer, and this is kind of my prayer every week for us, but especially for this week, is that um, the Spirit would just take this ancient truth and just apply it afresh to our hearts in such a way where the scales fall off. And, and I think he does that. If I even look at sermons that I just know have shaped me and formed me uh, throughout my life, it wasn't always a new topic. It was more often something that I had already known for a long time, but for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit applied that to my heart, convicted me, assured me in his truth in a new and powerful way, and I pray that that could be true uh, for this morning. And so um, I I want to, and I I don't typically do this, but I want you to give us the main point up front. Uh, Just cat out of the bag. What's the main point when it comes to wealth and faith all throughout the Bible, but especially the book of Proverbs? Um, If I had to sum it up in a phrase, it would be this. When it comes to wealth, prize it, but don't trust in it. Prize it, but don't trust in it. Maybe another way of saying it would be enjoy it, but don't idolize it. That's easy to say, um, and I think, again, that's the message all throughout Scripture, but I think more than any other topic, and you can make the case for this with all the topics in Proverbs, but I think more than any other, especially for a church like ours in Bergen County, in the suburbs, there can be a grand canyon between the talking points of wealth and the day-to-day life that we lead, where the truth is clear, and we nod, and we say amen, and then the application of it gets a little foggy. And so in that way, I'm grateful that Proverbs talks a lot about wealth because we need wisdom here, knowing that wisdom is not just knowledge, it's not just knowing the right answer here, but it's knowledge rightly applied, knowledge rightly lived out. That's wisdom. And to to be wise is not to just know a lot of things, but it's this life that gives glory to God that has a bent towards, Proverbs 1, uh, righteousness and justice and equity. And so um, before we dive into our passage, I want to share a quote that I came across this past week from a 19th century preacher named Charles Spurgeon. 
and through my study came across this prayer that he either opened a sermon or closed the sermon with this prayer. Listen up. It'll be on the screen as well. Oh, my Lord, let me not merely talk thus and pretend to despise earthly treasure when all the while I am hunting after it. But grant me grace to love above these things, never setting my heart upon them, nor caring whether I have them or have them not, but exercising all my energy in pleasing thee and in gaining those things which thou dost hold esteem. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be that this morning we all take a step to close the gap between the talking points and our application and let us grow in wisdom together. So with that said, Proverbs chapter 3, I encourage you to open up to there. Be, if you want to follow along in a blue pew Bible in front of you, you'll find Proverbs 3 on page 528. We're going to read verses 13 to 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, those who hold her fast are called blessed. These verses, 13 to 18, they're a, actually a poem in the midst of the chapter 3 of Proverbs. And, and, and it's a poem that's bracketed by the same word. The first word of verse 13, the last word of verse 18, blessed. And it's significant because it's the first time in the book of Proverbs where wisdom is not framed as just something we should be going after, but someone we should be going after. It's the first time in the book of Proverbs, and this theme will be carried through the entire book, that wisdom is a person. Wisdom is personified. And in the book, it's a beautiful woman named Lady Wisdom. And so Proverbs, and again, this is going to be our theme all summer, but again, just explicitly seen this morning, especially in this topic as we approach it, is that Proverbs is not a manual of how to do these things which will make you wise. It's not a formula. It's not just the life you lead. Proverbs is ultimately meant to point us to a person who makes us wise. You see the difference? That through a person, pursuing a person, we can continually grow in wisdom and then found and applied in the principles of this book. And we've seen this in all the other topics, generally in the sermon, in the flow of a sermon. It's kind of towards the end. We can connect the dots. How does Jesus relate in here? How's this pointing to Jesus Christ? But I kind of want to do that up front this morning and to know that um, the Bible shows us that ultimately everything is going to point us to this man, Jesus from Nazareth. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Lady Wisdom. And that Jesus is the one that we're called to pursue and treasure above all else. So if we go back to that poem in chapter 3 that we just read, fill in Jesus for every time you see the word wisdom. Just a few of those verses. Blessed is the one who finds Jesus and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from Jesus is better than gain from silver and Jesus' profit is better than gold. Jesus is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with Jesus. The whole point of your life is to run after Jesus, whatever the cost, because nothing you desire will be as valuable and long-lasting as him. 
Tim Keller, um, writing about the topic of wealth in Proverbs, he says this. Uh, this quote will also be on the screen. This one just made me worship in my study. Like I wanted to just burst while reading and preparing this. He says, Riches on earth can bring some short-lived status, but we are children of the king of the universe. Riches on earth can bring some security, but in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Riches on earth bring power, but we will rule with Christ. Christ has paid the only debt that could destroy us, which makes all other debts inconsequential. In Christ, you are truly rich. Treasure Jesus above all. And we're a few minutes in. I doubt I've said anything you have not heard before. I'm sure everyone has heard that this morning, but if there's anything that we just need to hear again and again, especially when we talk about money and wealth, and especially in an area like that we live in, it's this, treasure Jesus above all else. Anybody else need to hear that this morning? Yeah. So now, I do want to get ourselves to practical wisdom, because um, what should be the way we view money? Okay, so treasure Jesus above all, but here's the thing. We're all going to talk about money, and we're going to think about money, and it's going to dictate your life, and you're going to have to make a lot of decisions, and it's very relatable. It's very practical. No one is sitting where you're sitting this morning going, I don't know, money just has no really, doesn't really have any purpose in my life. I don't need it. I don't use it. This is not really relevant. Nobody's saying that. And so, yes, treasure Jesus above all, but that's the foundation for it. It's actually going to provide us the real practical wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And so how should we view money or the pursuit of money? And it's not as simple as we might think. Because, again, here's the phrase, prize it but don't trust in it. Wealth is good, but Jesus is better. And through the proverbial sayings in chapters 10 through 29 of the book of Proverbs, there's going to be all kinds of ways Solomon is going to make this point. So we're going to look at the benefits of prizing wealth, the benefits of prizing wealth, and then the dangers of trusting in it, and then finish with practical wisdom. And I want to start with the benefits of prizing wealth, because when we hear a sermon about wealth, uh, we tend to go negative first, don't we? So even, just full disclosure, I wrote this sermon. I had all the dangers first, and then all the benefits. And now as I was praying that over, that's where my mind goes. I always want to see wealth in kind of a negative light when it comes to the Bible. And the reason why is because I think I'm hypersensitive to something called the prosperity gospel, which I'll get to, and the destruction it leads to. But I can tend to overcorrect that and, and almost believe in a, what you might call a poverty gospel, where, where wealth is so negative and you can't ever approach it in any way. And the Bible just doesn't treat it that way. The Bible says there's benefits to wealth. And so we're going to do the benefits first and then the dangers. And then we're going to start with benefits. I have five. Number one, wealth is a blessing. In Proverbs chapter 3, saying Jesus is better than riches doesn't mean that riches can't be a good thing. And so we got to pay close attention here. It's not that easy. we got to really dial in. To say something is better is not to say that which it's better than is bad. Are you tracking with that? Right? So if I were to say, as we're on the cusp of football season, the Jets are better than the Giants. I got one. I got one. That's all I needed. I'm not saying the Giants are bad. I'm just saying they're not as good as the Jets. If you're a music fan, I don't have a dog in this fight, but if you said the Beatles are better than the Rolling Stones, you're not saying the Rolling Stones are bad. I think they're 80 and still playing shows or something. 
I'm just saying they're not as good. And so it's a little more gray. It's not black and white because we can be very quick in our day to make things black and white. In our nature, in our discourse, we always tend to run to the extreme of every argument, every talking point. That's why everyone's always at each other's throats because we always want to make things extremes. But most of the times, reality is somewhere in the middle. And so wealth is a blessing. Proverbs 10:22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. And again, I read a sermon like that and I start getting nervous because I immediately want to couch it with a warning. But we don't need to be so quick to do so, to be able to say wealth is a blessing. It doesn't mean everybody's going to get it or only God's favorite will be wealthy. But it also doesn't mean that if you are wealthy that you must have sold out. You must have went wrong somewhere along the way. Last week we talked a lot about marriage, and marriage is a blessing. It doesn't mean everyone needs to get married. It doesn't mean you need to be married to, to experience joy and fulfillment in Christ. And, and likewise, wealth is a blessing. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone has to have it to be blessed. Number two, this is going to seem like a contradiction, but number two, wealth is a reward. And so again, you go think, well, is wealth a blessing or is wealth a reward? And, and the answer is yes. It can be both. Proverbs is continually connecting wealth and riches to the result of hard work over a long period of time. Uh, we touched on this the week we talked about the wisdom of work, but a reminder of a few of these verses, Proverbs 12, 27, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Proverbs 14, 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Wealth is often a reward of hard work. Now, I feel like this is a good time to give an important reminder. I try to fit it in each week in some way that Proverbs are not guaranteed truths. They're not a formula, and they should not be read as such. They are generally held truths, generally held principles according to God's design that, listen, one day will be ultimately true. And the reason why they're not ultimately true, but just generally true now, is because the world is still fallen. And we still feel the brokenness of it, not only out there, but even in our own hearts. That, that Jesus has come and he's broke the curse of evil, but he has not yet returned and removed the presence of all of it. And, and to not know that in reading Proverbs, you could set yourself up for some crushing disappointment. Because if I'm listening to what I'm saying, and I'm in your shoes, I'm sitting there going, well, I work hard, but I'm not wealthy. And, and, and that is possible, to work hard and not be wealthy. It's not a formula. And, and beyond that, we know there are systems, there are oppressive structures in place in our society that keep certain groups of people from building wealth, aren't there? There are certain obstacles that certain people or groups of people will face that others will not. You know, one thing we did this summer, earlier this summer, was the Project Backpack campaign with Star of Hope for the kids in Patterson, knowing that thousands of kids show up on the first day of school with no materials, no supplies. And so I forget the total number. I think we aimed for 300. I think we were around there a little bit short of how many we did. But Star of Hope, in general, hit their goal, um, I think, of either 1,500 or 2,000 backpacks that are going to be supplied to kids fully loaded, cover them for the school year. Patterson allows them to throw a Bible in there to each kid. But nobody can say 
with a straight face that a kid growing up in Patterson has the same opportunity to build wealth as a kid growing up in Ridgewood. Why? Multiple reasons for sure, part of which is that there are systems in place that keep that from happening. Which is why, as the church in this area, not only should we be making disciples, but we should also be working where God has called us to, to be active in challenging systems that keep people from going places that other people have. That is one of the burdens of being in an area like Ridgewood we have. It's not to just think about ourselves, think about others. But generally speaking, hard work, good integrity will lead to building wealth as opposed to poverty. So if you are saying, well, I work hard, but I'm not wealthy, um, I would say, again, principles, not guarantees, but keep working hard because we work hard for the glory of God. We don't work hard just to gain wealth. But I will also say that your version of wealthy might not be the right version either. As we sit here surrounded by so much wealth, we tend to look at somebody who's way wealthier than us and go, I'm not wealthy. But if you put us up against the majority of the world, they look at us and go, that's wealthy. So maybe we got to just change our perspective there. That's number two. Wealth is a reward. Number three, wealth allows for provision. With wealth, you have the means to provide for your basic physical needs of food and, and shelter and water without wondering what how it will happen, right? This is why the Bible calls jewels precious and silver a gain and gold a treasure, not because it is in and of itself, but because of what it provides and what those things provide. And it particularly allows us to support those closest to us. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Wealth for provision doesn't mean we spend exorbitantly. doesn't mean that we make decisions to appear rich. Some of us have some work to do in our own hearts. The decisions we make, not because we can or should, because we want to appear a certain way. We have rich friends and rich coworkers. We want to appear rich in some way. You got to be careful. Proverbs 13, 8, one pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. So to be thinking through what are the motivations for wealth, a good motivation is to be able to provide for the generations coming behind you. A good reason to live below your means is not to just appear humble, but because you're providing more wealth for generations coming behind you that you maybe don't necessarily need to spend on yourself. Number four, wealth allows for generosity. Similar to provision, provision thinking more of the people closest to you, but generosity is just the world around you. And in the Christian worldview, this is the greatest, I think, benefit of wealth, is the opportunity to be generous towards others, to be generous towards building the kingdom of God. Proverbs 3, verses 9, verse 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. It's a very dangerous verse. I'll get to it in a second. But on its face, this promotes the opportunity to be generous towards sowing into the kingdom of God. And it's not our obligation to do so. It's our honor to do so. That it is a blessing to give. It just is. It just fills you with joy. And it's not like, oh, I have to give because I have all this money. It's your honor to give. And the more wealth you have, the more honor and opportunity you have to be generous 
What an honor it is. Listen, God does not need your money. He's not sitting there up, like during the offering going, man, I'm great church, I need this amount this week or I can't do the work. It's not the way he operates. It's our honor to play a part in this. Generosity is not for him, it's for us. It's for those around us and it gives glory to him. He'll figure it out. If it's not going to come for us, he'll get it from somebody else. And it's our place where we say, I have this opportunity to be generous and wealth is a blessing because it gives us an opportunity to be generous. And there's a lot of generous people in the world that have no love for God. And I understand that. But biblically speaking, nobody has as much motivation to be generous than a Christian does. And, and, and studies do back this up, that in North America, regular church attenders donate 3.5 times the money given by their non-religious counterparts. That people who attend church regularly volunteer twice as much as their non-religious counterparts. That's not just money, it's time, it's talent, it's giving what God has given me to bless others. This should be a core ethic for us. We have the best motivation to do so. Number five, fifth benefit, wealth leads to multiplication. Multiplication of what? Well, I, I think it could be many things, but I think more than anything else, it's the multiplication of blessing. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers only want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. When we give, we serve as a blessing to others, which then turns and serves as a blessing for us. And this verse, like the other one, could be abused and manipulated in a way to say something it shouldn't say, but ultimately we shouldn't throw it out either. That there's a richness in the blessing that's not just financial blessing. It might be, it probably won't be. But as you give more, you multiply the blessings that go out and that come back to you. Spiritual blessings, emotional blessings, relational blessings. And it's a blessing to know that you and me and our little lives can play a part in the multiplication of God's kingdom. So those are five benefits of wealth. And we should say them and be grateful for them and not shy away from them. But Proverbs is just as vocal, if not more vocal, towards the dangers of wealth. Church, prize it, but don't trust in it. There could probably be 13 dangers here, but we're in a time constraint here. Three. I'm going to give you three dangers. Number one, wealth alone is false prosperity. Wealth is a gift from God, but it's not a replacement for God. And this is the greatest temptation about money, that we can be guilty of drifting into this mentality, regardless of what we say we believe about money, we can drift into this mentality where we begin putting our full trust in it. You know, we'll see some verses from Proverbs in a moment, but Jesus himself made this most explicitly clear, clear the fog, right down the middle. He says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When the desire for wealth crosses that line from a gift to a God, people get destroyed. 
It's like going up a long hike up a large mountain peak. If you went hiking yesterday, beautiful day for a hike. You get to the top of a mountain and everyone wants to take a moment before they go back down to check out the view. It's a reward of getting to the top. And so you walk to the edge of a cliff and you see this terrible view. And in that moment, you are a single step. Just a single step marks the difference between a great view and a terrible fall. Proverbs 28, 11, a rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. Proverbs eleven four: riches do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: whoever trusts in his riches will fall, and the righteous will flourish like a leaf. Making wealth a god is this warning sign in neon lights all throughout the Bible. And here's the thing. Here's the scary part about it. No one will say, I'm serving the God of money. I'm serving the comfort it provides. No one will say that. But it's our biggest temptation to join money and Jesus as this one God instead of two, which will, which, you know what proves that fact? The fact that this is not just an ethereal maybe temptation, this is the temptation of the Bible, is that the single most powerful false gospel in the world today is the prosperity gospel. And I talk about it here and there, but I probably don't do a great job of explaining it. Like, what is the prosperity gospel? If you hear me say it, if you read about it, um, in its most drastic form, it's the promise that God wants to make you rich in every way. He wants to make you wealthy and healthy. And so it's attaching promises of earthly, material gain to faith in Jesus. If you grow in your faith in Jesus, God will give you all these things along with it. He wants you to prosper. In its most manipulative form, it takes verses, including many in Proverbs, like we read in Proverbs 3 and 9, to get people to give money to whoever is preaching with the promise that if they give, God will make them even richer. Give 100, you'll get 200 back. Just wait. And the more you give and the more you get. And this manipulative form talks very little about the cross. It talks very little about our own sin. It talks very little about suffering on the pathway to following Christ. It says nothing of giving yourself for God's glory. It's only giving for the purpose of getting for it yourself. And it is the most dangerous, fastest-growing gospel in the world, and its chief exporter is the United States. But in its softer forms, forms that can sneak into churches like Grace Church, a church in the suburbs, even while we claim to defend against it, in its softest, most dangerous form, it's just loving the gifts over the giver. It's a subtle, misappropriated love for things, or for status, or for health, even while ensuring or is vocally saying that we trust in Christ alone. It's this unhealthy love for the gifts over the giver, and it usually gets exposed in a time of suffering. Because it's this sneaky mentality that if things are going well for me, God must be happy with me. Yeah, I know I'm doing all that stuff, but look what's happening for me. God's blessing it. Or if things aren't going well for me, if things are taking a downturn, it's this mentality of like, God, what did I do to deserve this? Why am I suffering this way? God must not be happy with me. 
That's the subtle form of the prosperity gospel. And I think there's nothing that will bring more spiritual anxiety than the prosperity gospel. Because it forces you to be obsessed with whether or not you're being good enough to get rewarded. And if your life isn't awesome, well, something else might be, must be wrong with your faith. Or maybe God isn't all he was hyped up to be. It's anti-gospel, and it leads more people out of the faith than I think it even brings in. The front door to the prosperity gospel is big. I think the back door is even bigger. And the true gospel says, run after Christ. And if you get Christ, he is the greatest gift. The giver is the gift. God doesn't, now listen, we don't need to go to a place where God requires you to be poor, right? He does love to bless his children with good gifts, and he wants you to love those gifts. But once, once that love begins to go to the gifts more than the giver, we step over the cliff. It goes from a great view to a terrible fall. Number two, got to move fast here. Wealth can make us greedy. Greed is not a rich man's problem. It's a people problem. You can be greedy with $100 in the bank or $100 million. Proverbs 15, 27, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, for he who hates bribes will live. Proverbs 20, 21, An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Greed flows from the first danger of making uh, money a god because when money becomes a god in our hearts, we'll do whatever we need to do to get it. And we will compromise integrity because if wealth is the goal, who cares how you get it? Just get it. And and we begin to just cut um, soft edges off things and we begin to cut corners off things because, yeah, I know it's not ideal, but listen, like everybody does it or nobody will find out or I still have my faith. And we just start cutting quarters, cutting quarters. Proverbs 11, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Greed is serious for a lot of reasons, and it will lead to a lot of relational strife in your life because you will start to be defined by your greed. But above all else, greed is dangerous because it reveals unbelief. Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. The opposite of greed is not merely contentment. The opposite of greed is faith in Jesus Christ, which leads to contentment in all things. Third danger, wealth can draw us away from God. Proverbs 10, 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Here's the most practical point we all need to lean into when it comes to wealth. That wealth in its nature can draw us away from a day-by-day dependence on the Lord. And this can happen even if we don't really think we want it to happen. That we don't necessarily do it willingly. We kind of backpedal our way into it. Because the reality is money covers a whole bunch of needs. And when material needs wane in your life, our faith can tend to as well. So if you struggle with prayer, if prayer is just like always just hard and a struggle, one of the reasons why it might be is because there's not a lot of things you need to pray for. Everything's just kind of okay. And you'll go back to God if you need him, if there is a financial struggle or if there is a bad diagnosis from the doctor. And what happens is wealth can 
allow us to fail to recognize our need for him day by day, hour by hour. And in fact, if I'm reading the Bible correctly, I find that wealthy people should actually be more dependent on God and not less than the poor. Because the poor know they need God. They know they just can't do it on their own. But the wealthy can be so comfortable that they can be fooled into thinking, I'm doing all right. I'm doing just fine. God must be happy with me. It's surely one of the major reasons why Christianity is being challenged more and more in Western prospering nations and flourishing more in areas of persecution and poverty. And Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 19 when he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what you won't find in your Bible? A verse of Jesus saying how hard it is for the poor to enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't find it, but it's there for the rich. And the reason is that money can so easily be the means through which Satan blinds us to the gift and our need for Jesus Christ. There is a burden on the wealthy to steward their money well, to ensure that they do not allow it to blind them to their need for God, that their inheritance, whether you are building your own inheritance or you inherited a great inheritance that somebody else built, where is your hope in? Which inheritance, your earthly one or your spiritual one? Our earthly one is dependent on the size of our 401k and our retirement plan and our bank accounts. But our spiritual one doesn't require a dime. Our spiritual inheritance, Andy prayed the beginning of this prayer and this blessing in Ephesians 1. This is another part of it. Paul saying, in him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul chose that wording, because all of us are going to choose which inheritance matters more to you, your earthly one or your heavenly one. Well, I was going to close with practical wisdom. We don't have time to go through it all. But very quickly, I'll just tell you what they are. Number one, work hard and trust your wealth to the Lord. You work hard to the glory of God and you trust him with the wealth. Number two, steward wealth well. Randy Alcorn writes in his little book, Treasure Principle. It's available in our library. He says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And number three, make disciples with your wealth. Discipleship is the whole point of the church, to follow Jesus and help others do the same. And generosity plays a major part in it. And so we live open-handed, and we watch how God will multiply blessing tenfold. It won't necessarily mean financial blessing, although it might, but it will be primarily the multiplication of disciples, the multiplication of spiritual blessings that will come as a result of financial generosity, of stewarding wealth well. All of our legacies will not be how much money did you die with. 
It will be how much did you give of yourself. And you don't have to be financially rich to have a rich legacy. And in this way, we walk the path of Christ that he made for us. And we close this morning with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by his po- so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray.